God bless you guys. Thanks for joining in uh, at the this, this service. At this time, if you can make it, I'm happy whenever you join in, but if you can meet at 10 o'clock to give us solidarity, uh, as much solidarity as we can have during this COVID season, I appreciate it. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here. And I'm here to tell you that Ruth Richmond does not know how to count. She's counting down. That's <laughs> true. She's nine seconds, three, two, one. <laughs> so it's like, okay, there's that. And we always appreciate uh, Shauna when she wears her military fatigue. Uh, that's, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> but it, 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 you know, it, it doesn't mean that she's not a pacifist. She's a pacifist. She's a warrior for love. That's what it means, right? You're, you're retooling what it, it, yes. No doubt that's probably what's going on here. <laughs> okay. We actually have fun when we get together in these services here. Uh, there's just five of us here, but we have a ball. Uh, we're enjoying the spirit. Hope you are too. Um, well, we're, we're talking about Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and we've done over it. This is our sixth week on it, so you've got it memorized. I don't want to read it again. But this is where Jesus says that all Scripture, he says that, that the, uh, he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Uh, he's come to uh, fulfill them, and all of this needs to be accomplished in him. Uh, that means that if, if all the Bible is about Jesus, that means all the Bible is about good news. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up thinking the Bible was all about good news. Uh, you know, I... When I was growing up, I, my, when I thought about the Bible, it was mainly a scary, scary book. Uh, we had a family Bible in our house. No one read it, but we had one. Um, Catholic family Bible, big, thick thing. And my little sister and I used to sometimes just, when we felt daring, we used to page through that Bible because there's several sections where they had uh, photographs and artwork and things like that in color. And some of those pictures in that Bible were so scary. I mean, it should have been rated. Uh, there's one picture I remember of, of a, a girl holding the head of John the Baptist after it was cut off, and they just showed it, very graphic. And there's a depiction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Korah's rebellion while all these people were being swallowed by the earth. And I just got the overall impression that this is one scary book, and God is one scary God. And then I, they sent me to Catholic school, and I got bored of that scariness. All the stained glass windows, all the depictions of God, they all seemed ominous and scary, except for the Virgin Mary, who always looked lovely. And that's why I always felt safe talking to her, but not to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then on top of that, uh, for two years, second and third grade nuns uh, found a way to try to keep me in line, because I was a behavioral problem kid. And, and so they would give these little goody-two-shoe girls the Bible, this big, thick family Bible, and they had unquestioned permission to hit me over the head. Uh, if I was ever acting out or if they just were bored and wanted a, a little laugh. So I didn't grow up with the idea that the Bible's good news. When I think about the Bible, I don't think about good news. Not growing up, uh, it was scary news. Uh, it was painful news. Uh, it was weaponized news, but it was not good news. Not for me. I, I suspect a lot of us are in that same kind of situation where you know, the Bible was weaponized against you. Maybe literal, physical, like with my case, but maybe in other ways. Uh, you were shamed in conformity, or you know, shamed in compliance, or just scared into obedience. But the Bible doesn't represent good news. And see, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're conditioned to expect that the Bible's bad news, then when you read the Bible, what will stand out to you is everything that confirms that bad news. So you develop a bad news way of reading the Bible. But see, all the Bible is supposed to point to Jesus, which means all the Bible is actually about good news. Um, in some ways, the Bible is like a Rorschach test. What you find in it will say a lot about what your beliefs are and what your expectations are and where your heart's at. The Pharisees could never see how the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus told them this in John 5. He says, because the love of God's not in your heart. You, you, you find what you expect to find when you go to the Bible. So if you've been given a bad news Bible because the preacher just used it to shame you into whatever, 
uh, get compliance out of you, well then that is what you're going to find. You've been, you've been trained to find that. You see, what we're going to see now is that if, if we're really going to read the Bible the way Jesus tells us to read the Bible, uh, where it all points to him and he is the interpretive lens, since it all points to him, we have to read the whole thing as though it points to him. It's about learning how to find the good news Bible, the, the Bible that's all about the good news, the best news, in fact, in all the world. So we saw that Jesus, he says, all of this is, is got to be fulfilled in him. And there's a lot of verses that, that say that. And since Jesus believed the whole Bible was divinely inspired, I submitted a couple weeks ago that if we call him Lord, we must believe that the Bible is, is divinely inspired. And if he believes that the whole Bible is divinely inspired to point to him and to bring us into a deepening, transforming relationship with him, well, if he believes it, then, then, then we must believe that. And however much we've been conditioned to view the Bible otherwise, our task now is to try to see it the way Jesus saw it, to read it in a way that it is really all about good news. We saw in the last couple of weeks this, uh, Jesus is, he fulfills these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise in the Old Testament. And there's the verses that, some of the verses that, that attest to that. And more specifically, the crucified Christ we saw is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah whose death and resurrection culminates God's inspired story. It all comes to a pinnacle in his death that is confirmed by his resurrection. Uh, Jesus is the life that all scripture is supposed to point to. That's why he chides the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, you study the scriptures diligently, bravo, good for you, that's a good thing to do. But because the love of God's not in your heart, you, you don't find the life that all scripture is supposed to point to. And that life is in him. So, so if you're reading the scripture and it's not leading you to Christ, you're not reading the scripture rightly. You're not reading it in a life-filled life way. You're reading it in a lifeless way. Just studying the scripture without hearing God speak to you through it, without entering into a relationship with Christ, is reading it in, in, a, in a way that is not conformed to the way God intended this book to be read. And finally... The crucified Christ is the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom. If all the treasures of God's wisdom are found in the crucified Christ, then why would you go anywhere else to find any wisdom about God? It's all there. And so if we're reading scripture right, all the wisdom we find will be wisdom that points us to the crucified Christ because ultimately he's the source, the foundation for all wisdom. Uh, over and over again, we find in the New Testament, it's always reiterating this point. The Bible is a story that leads to Christ, that points to Christ, that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Actually, this point is so obvious in the New Testament that you find people throughout church history affirming this, even though I don't think they carried it out consistently. But they, many people have seen, I was surprised when I started doing research on this 10, 15 years ago, that, that you find the cross is really a cent centerpiece of theology throughout church history. It's just that people don't apply it very well. But they got the principle because the principle is undeniable. It's right there in the New Testament. So Luther said this. He says, I find nothing in Scripture other than Jesus Christ crucified. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ crucified. Boom! Nailed it! Now, I really wish he'd, he'd, he'd applied it a little more consistently. I've read some of his commentaries, and, and the he, truth is, he finds a lot in the Bible that's not about Christ crucified. I wish he would have uh, kind of fleshed out how, knowing that it's all about Christ crucified, how that affects his interpretation, say, of the violent acts of God in the Old Testament and whatnot. But at least he got the principle. What I'm trying to do today is uh, take that principle that people have had throughout church history. It's all about Christ crucified, and I want to apply it consistently. How does all of this Bible point to Jesus Christ crucified? Um, so while the Bible is divinely inspired, it's inspired to point to the most glorious good news imaginable. Uh, 
Because Jesus Christ crucified is the best news imaginable. It's a story about the creator God who created all things by the power of his word and holds all things together by the power of his word. This God becomes a human being, enters into solidarity with our human being, stoops an infinite distance to enter into solidarity with, uh, uh, with humanity, and then with our sin on the cross, and then with the consequences of sin, the curse that accompanies all sin on the cross. And the depth that God stoops reveals the perfection of the love that God is and the perfection of the love that God has for us and for all creation. It's the best news imaginable. And the resurrection confirms that this way of living, this cruciform way of living and cruciform way of dying is the way that overcomes in the end. It's about living in the self-sacrificial love of God and trusting that that love in the end is going to be victorious and will eventually root out all evil from this creation so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything points to the cross as the full and complete revelation of who God is down to the core of God's being. But to see how all the Bible points to this, it, it requires a certain way of reading. In fact, we saw last week that in Luke 24, Jesus makes it clear that you can't really see how all Scripture points to the crucified Christ and finds its fulfillment in the crucified Christ unless you're open to the Spirit opening your eyes. Uh, Jesus had to open their eyes to show them how all Scripture is really about him. It, it, it requires a new way of seeing. At the end of this message, I'll say it requires a sort of bifocal vision where we see what's near, which is the text, but we also see something going on behind the text. We have the depth perception of faith. I'll say more about that uh, last, uh, or towards the end of the sermon. So, as I mentioned last week, there's no one right way of doing this. In fact, the church has always found a multitude of different ways, and we find this in the New Testament itself, a, a multitude of different ways of, of showing how the Old Testament all points to Christ. Um, showed last week about how Christ fulfills the basic storyline of the Bible of exile and, and redemption coming out of Egypt and all of that. He is the Passover lamb who's going to lead all of humanity out of our Egypt and breaking the powers of darkness and setting us free. But there's many other ways as well, but we can't get into all those. It would take too long. I'll give you two resources here. Um, one is, I mentioned this last week, Megan Good's book, uh, The Bible Unwrapped. A really, really excellent book. Probably, I think the best introduction to the Bible that I, I've ever read. Um, and, and she shows how it all is, is about Jesus. The Bible is a window uh, through which we look to see uh, Jesus Christ. Another book I recommend is uh, Frank Viola, a friend of mine, and Leonard Sweet. Uh, Jesus, it's called A Theography. Uh, it's a thick book very well-researched book, and it, it talks about a number of ways that the, all the Bible points to Jesus. Uh, check it out. I want to warn you on this, though, that um, Frank and he and I have debated this. Uh, he holds to what I think is a platonic view of eternity, eternity not as endless succession, but eternity as timelessness, and that gets woven a lot into this book. Uh, so just pay attention to what they say about the Bible and don't worry about all that timelessness stuff because it might mix you up metaphysically, and we don't want anyone to have a messed up metaphysics. All right, there you go, in my humble opinion. So today, I want to take another look at a different way in which all Scripture points to the crucified Christ. And this way, I think, is particularly important because I'm going to be addressing the material in the Bible that least seems to point to Jesus Christ crucified. It least seems to point to or bear witness to the self-sacrificial love of God that was revealed on Calvary. Um, I'll be looking at material that if we were to find it in any other book— we would say this is not holy material. This is, 
this doesn't seem to be inspired material. This is ugly material. This is immoral material. Maybe even this, is, this seems like demonic material. It's just that because it's in our Bible, we, we, we have to say, well, no, somehow it's all good. Uh, we got to get honest with this. If it looks ugly, then we got to say it's ugly. So we're going to ask the question, how does the ugly side of the Bible, and there's some ugly stuff there, and if you're not yourself a Bible reader, you might not know about this ugly side of the Bible because it's the, kind of, it's the part of the Bible that we never talk about in church. Usually in church, we pretend like it's not there. But I think we've got to come clean and deal with this material. It's the ugly side of the Bible. I, I'll give you this last advertisement. Um, I have two books on this that if you want to go deeper in this, uh, I encourage you to read these books. Uh, one is for the Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is the two-volume uh, work, 1,500 pages long, and it's for eggheads. Okay, that's where you get all the footnoting and all that kind of stuff. Then, if you're a normal person, we have the cross vision, it's called. The popularized version of this. And we also have a group study guide that goes along with this. And so if you study this as a group, you might want to use the study guide that we put together for that. Um, if you've read either of those books, or, or if you've heard me teach on this, this will be review for you, to some degree at least. But... Um, I'm, I'm going to take a new spin on this. I have a new angle on this, and sometimes coming at things from a different angle helps the coin drop in the slot a little more thoroughly. So I encourage you to be paying attention. Plus, it's not the kind of thing that you just automatically get the first time you hear it. Sometimes people have had to hear it a couple of times or read the book a couple of times before they actually get the paradigm that's being proposed there. And I want to make it clear at the start here that what I'm going to be sharing here is, is, is not doctrine. This isn't the doctrine of Woodland Hills Church. This is the opinions of Greg Boyd. And I share it because I find it helpful for me, and I think it is, I, I, it's turning out to be helpful for a lot of people. But whenever we have a, uh, in, what we think might be an insight in the Bible that we want to share with others, it's got to be submitted to community discernment. And so the reason I wrote these books is to submit this to community discernment. And we'll see if, if, if it's a genuine insight or if it's just uh, Greg's fantasy. But uh, yeah, try it out. And if you find something that explains what I want to explain here better than I'm explaining it, please let me know. I'm always open to better solutions. What do we do with the ugly side of the Bible? Here's a little slice of, of what I'm talking about. Um, there's a small snippet. I have hundreds of pages on this in Crucifixion of the Warrior God, but here I'll give you a few examples. First of all, you find in the Bible just some laws that are just weird, just weird, uh, silly, uh, odd. Uh, for example, we, we read that you're not supposed to plant two different kinds of, of uh, uh, seed in the same field. And you're not supposed to wear clothing that mixed together two different kinds of garments. Now, I bet every, probably most people hearing this right now are violating that rule. I got wool and cotton and other synthetic things that I'm wearing, I'm sure. But here, the Almighty apparently gets very irate if you wear two different kinds of clothing or you mix seeds together. What's up with that? Here's another Interesting rule. You're not allowed to round off the hair on your head or on your face. Don't trim it. Don't make it look nice and neat. No, you just got to let it go. Don't. And that's why the Orthodox Jews have those you know, curls coming down. They're not allowed to touch those things. Why? Now, someone needs to tell Charlie Swanson that that's an Old Testament rule that he doesn't need to be abiding by because if you look at his hair recently, it looks like he's trying to adhere to this Old Testament law. Charlie, you don't need to do that. I'm just saying. You look enough like Jesus. Stop now. All right. Uh, here's another interesting rule. All bodily discharges render a person unclean for seven days. Uh, the author has in mind here everything from nocturnal emissions to menstrual cycles and things of that sort. Um, it renders you unclean. Uh, anyone or anything they touch must be cleansed. So if during that period of time um, a woman sits on a couch, you've got to cleanse the couch when she's done with it. If she touches you, you've got to go get purified. You've been unclean. In fact, there's a passage that tells women that during their monthly time they have to wear a special 
a garment that tells everybody that they're unclean. Walk around, I'm clean. So they can't come within certain distance, like 20 feet or something from them. I think uh, we can all give thanks that those, that rule is no longer applied today. Uh, but yeah, what, what, what's, why is the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, concerned about things like this? And, and, and I mean, what was up with that? Because clearly we're no longer under that uh, law. So it make, makes you wonder why were they under the law in the first place? Weird stuff like that. You find some of the laws of the Old Testament are just cruel. At least by contemporary standards. For example, uh, the capital punishment is prescribed for homosexuals and rebellious children. Sass back too much and mom's going to get you stoned and not in the modern sense of stoned, in the ancient sense of stoned where you paid for it with your life. If the daughter of a priest becomes a prostitute, she's to be burned alive uh, because she's profaned her father. She brought shame on her father, so she has to be burned alive. Any priest who enters the tabernacle with their, their hair disheveled, their clothes torn, any kind of rip, or after they drunk any alcohol, was to be stoned to death. Now, that'd be good motivation. If I was a priest back in those days, I would have shaved my head a long time ago because it would prevent the problem of having disheveled hair, which I tend to have a lot when I used to have hair. But man, death sentence for that. Was that really God's idea? If a husband discovers his newly wedded bride is not a virgin, she's to be stoned to death. No such uh, similar crime is prescribed for the male. What's up with that? And then some of the stuff in the Bible is just disturbing. I mean, so for example, you find throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that uh, women are treated as property. They don't have any of their own individual rights. And this is even in the Ten Commandments. Here's the commandment against coveting. It only applies to male. males. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet their male or female slave, or their ox, or their donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So the reason you have to covet your neighbor's wife is not because she's a human being and she shouldn't be objectified and anything of this, no reason like that. It's because she belongs to someone else, just like the ox and the donkey. And you see that with the crimes for, you know, against women. It's, it's the crimes, it, the punishment is, is equivalent to a valued property, not a full human being. So what is up with that? What's up with that? And then we find, uh, even in the New Testament, slavery is, is, is allowed. We find, I read this in 1 Peter 2. It says, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it's a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. Now, we have to contextualize this verse, and Dennis Edwards wrote a great commentary on 1 Peter where he contextualizes this verse. He taught a little bit about this here uh, a couple of years ago. But still, we have here, it's not a, you would think that the Almighty God would pronounce that slavery is absolutely, unconditionally terrible, wrong, prohibited, and yet here it's in the Bible. What is up with that? Why is that? How do these laws, these sometimes silly, sometimes cruel, and violent, how, how do they point to the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally we have God sometimes presented in very violent ways, ways that make him look very much like uh, just a typical ancient Near Eastern warrior God. The worst one perhaps being when, when, when the Lord says uh, to go into, uh, tells Moses to have the Israelites go into Can the land of Canaan and certain regions of Canaan slaughter every person, every man, woman, child, infant, and even slaughter the animals, utterly destroy them, in fact, utterly destroy them as an act of worship to Yahweh. Cherim is the word that's used. It means devote to destruction. In the name of Yahweh, we slaughter you. 
And what makes it kind of ironic is that the reason why they're going slaughtering every man, woman, child, and infant in certain regions of Canaan is because those wicked Canaanites used to sacrifice children. So think about that. The cure for sacrificing children is to sacrifice not only all the children, but all, every, everything that breathes. It seems to me that the cure is a whole lot worse than the, uh, than, than the disease. All right, so what's going up with this? How do these point to the cross, since all of it's supposed to point to the cross? Now, I'm going to take a new angle on this. Uh, when I've taught on this, I haven't approached it just from this angle, because I'm going to address this issue of how these things point to the cross by looking at progressive revelation. Uh, everybody throughout history, theologians have known that the revelation of God in the Bible is progressive. Uh, it doesn't happen all at once. God doesn't give us a theology textbook and says, okay, this will apply for all time. No, it's an unfolding story. And as the story unfolds, you gradually learn a little bit more about God. And you learn a little bit more about what his will is for the earth. And, and, and it, as it heads towards its culmination in the crucified Christ, slowly people get more and more what God is like and what God's expectations are. It's progressive revelation. Uh, in, the, in the early church, they used this analogy a lot, uh, especially the Cappadocian fathers, uh, of, of humanity as, as, uh, as, as one human being. And just like a human being goes through different stages of being, first you're you know, an infant, then you're a child, then you're an you know, adolescent, and then you're a young teenager, then you're a young adult, and then you're an adult. And they said that the, the way God treats humanity at any point in time depends on where humanity is at at that point in time. To a child, God has to appear one way. To an adult, God has to appear a different way. Um, and and, and the, the, the strategies that God uses are going to depend on where we are as an adult. So he's, God's trying to grow us up as a species. The classic text that was usually cited to enforce this idea of progressive revelation is Isaiah 28, verses 9 through 11. And just listen to this. The Lord says, Whom will he, my prophet, teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message that I want to get to these people? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast. And what he's implying there is, well, I wish, but there aren't any of those. So then he says, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, and line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What's going on here is this. The Lord's saying, I want to teach them my message. I want to reveal to them who I truly am. But... They're still spiritual infants. I can't even get them off their mother's milk. The author of Hebrews makes the same complaint in Hebrews, I think it's five, or Hebrews six, where he says, you guys, you ought to be mature, able to eat meat now, but instead you're still eating, you know, you're still needing milk. Come on, it's time to grow up. Well, this is what Yahweh's saying. He's like, I want to teach my people, but they're spiritual infants. And you actually find this refrain a lot throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, these people are stiff-necked pe stiff people. They're ignorant, they're stubborn, they don't get it. Over and over, God, you know, again, you find Yahweh frustrated at this. So I have to teach him precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line. And the repetition there is intentional. It communicates frustration. It communicates patience. It communicates God's arduous work. I have to line up. I have to repeat myself. I have to keep on drilling this in because they're just not getting it. They're stubborn people. And so revelation is progressive because people are slow learners. Uh, this already reveals something incredibly, incredibly important about God. Why does God take the time to go line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, here a little, there a little? Why? Why, why doesn't God just wave a supernatural wand and, and make everyone believe true stuff? 
Boom, all of a sudden we have only true thoughts about God, nothing false about God. Why doesn't God just perform a spiritual, supernatural lobotomy on the human race to get us all thinking right thoughts about God, ourselves, uh, each other, and the earth and the animal kingdom? Why does he have to go through this long, slow, centuries-long process of trying to work with human beings? Why? Well, it already shows us that any God who's doing that is clearly not a God who resorts to coercion to get his way. And the reason God won't resort to coercion to get his way, to force people to believe the true things about him, is because love doesn't do that and God is love. Love doesn't manipulate people, doesn't coerce people, doesn't reduce people down to puppets. Love works with people as people, as human beings. And human beings go through a learning process and we make decisions and we got our free agency and we, and we can conform or not conform to choices up to us and God deals with us as those free agents. Love does not coerce or manipulate. This is why Paul confirms this point when he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18, 24 and verse 30 that uh, the cross, while well, it's foolishness and weakness to the world, to us it is the power of God. The power of God is revealed on Calvary. Now, what kind of power is that? Well, it's, it's, it's anything but a coercive power. God, it's like, you look at a cross, it's not like, oh, look how God's manipulating everybody. No, it looks totally powerless. What could look more powerless than, than hanging on a cross with nails in your wrists and your feet? It's, it's no, see, the, the power of the cross is the power of God's love, God's influential love. Uh, it's the power to change people's hearts by sacrificing for them, by serving them, by not retaliating against them. Uh, it, 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 that's why Jesus says, if I am lifted up, when I'm lifted up, and he's talking about both the cross and also about uh, uh, the church as we preach the cross. When we lift Jesus up, he will draw all people to himself. It's the beauty of, of God's self-sacrificial love, the beauty of God's true character that's intended to, to win our hearts, to draw us towards him. That's the kind of power that God relies on. It's the opposite of coercive power. And so God is always loving people in the direction of truth, always influencing people in the direction of truth as much as possible. But if he's only going to influence and not coerce, there comes a point where God has to say, any more, if I were to exert any more influence, it would be coercive. And so I have to, if I'm going to keep on influencing them, I have to accept them as they are, exactly as they are. I have to accept them with all their faults, with all their, with all their false beliefs, with all their cultural conditioning. God has to accommodate them as they are if God wants to keep on influencing them in the direction of where he knows that they're to go. So progressive revelation is the process of God stooping to accommodate people in their fallen condition, in their cultural conditioning, in their false beliefs. Progressive revelation isn't just about adding on true beliefs, though some evangelicals have tried to argue that, well, to preserve a doctrine of inerrancy. But see, if, if, if humanity is learning more and more about who God truly is, that implies that we're getting more and more freed from our false ideas about who God is. You can't have one without the other. And so well, the, the Bible is telling us this progress of God weaning his people off of their pagan ideas about who he is in order to reveal his true character to them and his true plans for, for, for humanity. But see, in doing that, here's the thing. If God accommodates the fallen beliefs of the people that he's working with here, that may look, make, make him look bad because now he's going to look like he's a God who condones those false beliefs. He's conforming to those false beliefs. So maybe those false beliefs are actually true beliefs. 
It's no different than the kind of love that Jesus illustrated when, when he, even though he's the sin, one sinless man in history, he, his love was such that it, it drew the worst of sinners to him. They wanted to hang out with him. They stared clear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because those folks were always just pointing out their sin. They thought it was their job to be the moral policemen of the world. And so we got to point out these, because if you don't point out their sin, people are going to think that, that, that you, you condone that sin. Well, Jesus wasn't that worried about that. He was more interested in loving people. And so it the, tells us, the Gospels tell us that he had, he had parties with the prostitutes and the tax collectors without pointing out their sin. And so the religious high and mighty, they look down on this and they say, look, birds of a feather flock together. You can tell a man's character by the company he keeps. So they judged him, and the Bible tells us that they judged him as being a womanizer and a, and a drunkard and a glutton. Birds of a feather flock together. But Jesus was willing to ruin his reputation for the sake of love. That tells you a lot. For Jesus, and this, this is what reveals God's character, love of people, real people, in their fallen condition comes before the rules, comes before all categories. Love of people comes before even ideals that you have. Love of people is the end all for, for God. Jesus reveals that. So throughout the Bible, we find God doing what Jesus does with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He enters into solidarity with the worst of sinners. Because he's in a covenant relationship with them. He's not going to get rid of them because of their imperfections. He, he rather embraces them in their imperfections, but thereby takes on an appearance that's going to reflect those imperfections. You see this throughout the Bible. I, 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 here's, here's an example I'll give you. With, with animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices, I will tell you, ever since I first became a Christian— were, to me, the worst parts of the Bible. I, I, I hate reading about the animal sacrifices. I've always had, I killed a squirrel once when I was 12 years old and I cried. Uh, my dad let me have a shot. And I just did it for target practice. And then went out to check the squirrel and the squirrel had nuts in its mouth. And then I also realized I probably just killed the mother and its babies are back in the tree and now they're going to starve to death and it's my fault. So I started crying. My dad and brother started laughing at me. I never went hunting again. I hate, I just am not an animal killer. So I, when you read these descriptions of how you're supposed to take the pigeon for this kind of a sin and twist its head three times counterclockwise and pop it off and then sprinkle the blood over here and sprinkle the blood over there. Make sure you put a little oil in your robe. And all those gory, gory details. It's like, ah, it's, it's like, oh, those poor animals. But why would the creator of heaven and earth want such a thing? Now, I, I, here, I submit to you that animal sacrifices, this wasn't God's great idea. Oh, hi, God. Let's kill some animals to appease me. Uh, no, see, Cain and Abel, the first sacrifices are found in Genesis 4, and God doesn't tell Cain and Abel to make sacrifices. They just start doing it. And we know this from archaeology, studying the historical record, that, that as far back as we can go, human beings have felt this need to appease the gods so the gods won't be mad at them, by feeding the gods. And you feed the gods your crops, you feed the gods your animals, and sometimes you feed the gods your children, because that will buy their protection at least, or at least will buy their favor. Maybe they'll help you win some wars, and they'll protect you from going into a famine or whatever. So you, you, you sacrifice to appease the gods. We've been doing that from, from day one. And throughout the ancient Near East, everybody sacrificed. Way before the Hebrews came along, they were sacrificing animals and children to the gods, to feed the gods. So the Israelites were sacrificing. Well, I'll show this here in a minute. They're making sacrifices before they ever got to know Yahweh. That was just part of the culture they were in. Now, hundreds of years later, when we get to the minor prophets, Yahweh is able to reveal what he really thinks about these animal sacrifices. And what he says is, I don't delight in your sacrifices. I don't take pleasure in these sacrifices. Uh, they don't please me. In fact, they disgust me. 
If we, this comes to a pinnacle in the New, New Testament when we read this. Uh, Hebrews 10. The author says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't work. It didn't accomplish anything. So you've got to wonder, why were they doing it? But now, and this is the Son of God speaking here, prior to his incarnation, prior to him becoming God and flesh in Jesus Christ, the Son says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. God takes no pleasure in those things. The sacrifice that God wants, Christ says, is this human body. That I become a human person and that I offer up my life in order to free human beings who are now in exile, to bring them out of their Egypt and bring them back into the fold of God, as we sang about a little bit earlier. Uh, Jesus is to be the sacrifice. Those animals being sacrifices didn't do anything. It didn't give God pleasure. It didn't wash away sin. So why did he do it? Well, God was accommodating them where they're at. And then God retools this practice of sacrificing animals. He retools it uh, to give it a different meaning so that now the author says that they were the shadow, but Christ is the reality. They, 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 they become sort of, for, they, they speak ahead of time of the sacrifice that God himself is going to make because they speak about the consequences, the death consequences of covenant breaking. So God gives it a new meaning. It's not about feeding me anymore. It's not about appeasing me. It's to remind you about the consequences of breaking covenant and to then give a foreshadowing of, of the real sacrifice that is to come. But they did not please God and they did not take away any kind of sin. But see, in the earliest stages, the Israelites weren't ready to hear that. When they were still in the infantile stage, they couldn't hear that. This was just part of their culture. This is what they did. And so early on, here's what the Lord tells them to do in Leviticus uh, chapter 17. He says, The priest shall dash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Must have been a pretty, pretty bloody doorway. And turn the fat into smoke as a pleasing odor to the Lord. Mm -mm, I do love the smell of that burning flesh. So that they may no longer offer their sacrifices for goat demons to whom they prostitute themselves. So follow this. Now God's always influencing in the direction of truth. In his love, he's always influencing in the direction of truth as much as possible. Here, here we can see the spirit moving in the direction of truth because number one, the people are no longer sacrificing to goat demons. See, they're already making animal sacrifices, but they're doing it to the goat demons. So Yahweh is saying, well, since they're going to sacrifice, I might as well make the sacrifices to me. <laughs> Get rid of those goat demons. So that's God's inching them forward. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Slowly but surely, God's moving them forward. So no more goat demons, yay. And then we find that Yahweh, in moving them forward toward truth, he, he got them off of the idea that Yahweh consumes the sacrifice. We don't have any pictures of Yahweh coming down and eating the sacrifice. You find that in all the other literature of the ancient Near East. The, the aroma of the sacrifice goes up, and the gods, it says, they, 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 they start to surround it like flies. Uh, they smell it, and they're attracted to it, and they come down and devour the sacrifice. So there's no more, I mean, Yahweh was able to free them from the idea that I, he needs our food to be appeased. Although, you do find two times in Leviticus, the sacrifices are referred to as Yahweh's food. So there's still a legacy, a kind of a carryover of that ancient Canaanite belief. And we find that they, they weren't ready to give up the belief that God likes the odor. Maybe he doesn't need to eat it, but he must still like the smell of it. So 13 times in the Old Testament, we have this phrase uh, that the, 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 the aroma went up and it was pleasing to the Lord. He just never comes down to eat it. Of course, God doesn't delight in the, the aroma of, of burning animals. But the people thought that. 
And they weren't ready to let that go. And God's the kind of God, he's not going to wave a magic wand to lobotomize them to have true beliefs. Get out of that silly belief that I need to devour food. Get out of the idea that I enjoy the smell of that. No, he's going to work with them as people, which means it's going to take a line upon line, precept upon precept. It's going to take a long time. Slowly but surely, he weans them from that belief. The early church theologian, uh, fourth century theologian, just so you know, this isn't just my contemporary meanderings here. This goes, this is how the church read the Bible in the, in the early church. Fourth century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus says this. In his fifth oration on the Holy Spirit, he says, God beguiled his people into the gospel by gradual changes. He almost gives us the picture that God has to trick people into learning, because you kind of do. It's like we're teaching children. You have to make it part entertaining just so you can hold their attention so you can teach them. So God beguiles them. He, He plays along with it. You need to think of me this way. Okay, I'll let you think about me this way, even though I'm not really this way. But later on, I'll show you that. You're not ready for it now. So he gets this idea that God, the way God appears to different people at different stages of, of, of our progress will, will differ depending on what their needs are, depending on what their capacities are. And then he says, to illustrate how God beguiles his people by gradual changes, he says, God first cut off the idol, because that was the first thing they had to go. No more idolatry. But he left the sacrifices. Later on, he cuts out the sacrifices, but he leaves the circumcision. And then later on, he got rid of the rule about circumcision. So inch by inch, line by line, precept upon precept, God is delivering his people. Uh, He's always influencing in the direction of truth as much as possible, but he's always stooping to accommodate their people, his people in their sin as much as necessary. But when God does that now, he will take on an appearance that reflects the sin that he's accommodating. And so we find that throughout much of the Bible, God looks like a typical ancient Near Eastern deity who delights in these sacrifices. You get that impression. You go, God really enjoys, he really likes the order of these things. But we know the true God doesn't. And so when we come upon these animal sacrifices and these portraits of God requiring and demanding and enjoying animal sacrifices, we've got to remember, that's not who God really is. The surface of that, 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 those passages, the, the, the surface meaning of those passages doesn't reflect who God truly is. In fact, the surface meaning of those passages reflects the sin that God is bearing. God doesn't want the animal sacrifices. The people do. And they're not ready to let go of it yet. So God lets himself be portrayed as this deity who was enjoying animal sacrifices, even though we know that, that it's not. What should reveal God to us in these passages is that we see God is the one who stooped down to bear this sin. Uh, he's a God of grace who is willing to bend his ideals to meet people in their real and to deal with people in their real. We see God doing in the, in the, the process of accommodating animal sacrifices kind of what he's doing on the cross. And this is how I think some of these, these, these ugly portraits of God and fallen culturally conditioned portraits of God point to the cross. Uh, so he, 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 here's what God does on the cross. Humanity is estranged from God, Right? Uh, now, God's not going to coerce us and dehumanize us into being unestranged and having only wonderful, true thoughts about God. He's not going to coerce us. He deals with us as people. So he can't just coerce us into believing the truth. But he also doesn't want to just turn us over to believe whatever we want to believe because that will lead to destruction. That's the judgment of God. When God says, I got to let you have your way, that's the judgment of God. And God doesn't want to, he wants us to, he wants to be in a relationship with us. He doesn't want to let us go. So instead, what God does is he works by means of loving influence. And that's what the cross is all about. The cross is the power of God. And that power of God, and when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. The beauty of the power of God is to draw us out of our Egypt, out of our bondage to the principalities and powers, out of our bondage to sin. And it allows the Holy Spirit to come and take residence inside of us and and begin to transform us from the inside out. 
So God's going to lovingly influence. He's going to win our hearts to see him as he truly is. That's what the cross is all about. God stoops to enter into solidarity with our humanity and with our sin and with the curse that goes along with that sin. And then God takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of the sin that God is bearing. That's what the cross is all about. So the surface of the cross doesn't reveal God to us. The surface of the cross, well, what you see on the surface is simply a crucified Jewish criminal. He looks guilty. He looks cursed, Paul says, Galatians 3.16. Anyone who hangs on, on, on a tree is, is cursed by God. So he looks cursed. He looks guilty. It looks ugly. Because he, the surface reflects the sin that God is bearing. But the cross reveals God to us when we, by faith, look beyond the surface and we see that it's God who stooped this infinite distance out of love, the creator who stooped this infinite distance out of love for us to meet us where we're at, to love us where we're at, to embrace us where we're at, to enter into solidarity with us where we're at, and thereby to take out an appearance that reflects where we're at. And in doing that, he's revealing the, the love that he is and the love that he has for us and for all the creation. But notice, it's what we see by faith, not what we see by sight. Everyone can see the surface of the cross and we see the same thing. It's ugly. But when you have faith, you see beyond that and you see a stooping God who bends to meet us where we're at. And that's what reveals the perfection of the love that God is. Take away that and the cross doesn't reveal God at all. So progressive revelation, I submit to you, is, is, is God's been... Progressive revelation is like the cross laid vertically throughout all of history. Progressive revelation shows us that God's always been doing what he does on the cross. And that's how all these portraits point to the cross. If there's any other way that they point to the cross, somebody tell me, because I, I can't see it. But he's always been a sin-bearing God. So he's always been a God who's willing to reveal his beauty by appearing ugly. But you only see the beauty in his appearing ugly if you have the eyes of faith to see his beauty becoming ugly. Because you don't see that physically with your eyes. You don't see that in service. You see that in its depth perception. And once you get the hang of this, you start to see it everywhere in the Bible. Uh, God didn't start being cruciform when he got crucified. No, he got crucified because he's always been cruciform. The cross isn't an exception to the way God always is. The cross, if it reveals who God truly is, it's the chief example or the chief illustration of who God truly is and therefore who God has always been. And progressive revelation shows this. So here's the pattern you find throughout the Bible. God gives his ideal. Here's my ideal. But because he's not going to coerce people into conforming to the ideal, he has to deal with people in the real. So you have his ideal, and then you have the real. And, and when the ideal is no longer attainable, God says, okay, well, well, what's the next best option? If plan A doesn't work, well, let's go with plan B. If plan B doesn't work, you're not capable of that, well, then let's go with plan C. And then plan D, and then to Z. And then you start over again, okay? God's always willing to adjust uh, his ideals to accommodate the realities of where people are at, because he's not a God who's going to lobotomize anyone's brain. So a, a couple examples really quick. Uh, marriage, God's ideal clear in Genesis was to have one sexual partner throughout your whole life. In fact, we'll find in the teachings of Jesus that God's ideal is, if God had his way, we'd only think about one sexual partner throughout our whole entire life. Well, that ideal is, uh, has not been attainable by any of us. And so we find that because of the sin of the world, the fallenness of humanity, uh, that God has to adjust that ideal. Uh, men were being slaughtered in war all over the place, and so women were being left without any kind of protection, and children were being sold into sexual slavery, and women had to go into prostitution. So God says, Can we, we've got to relax that ideal. And so he allows for polygamy. Uh, better to relax the ideal of monogamy uh, than to have women sold into prostitution and children sexually exploited and starving to death. 
And so he allows for polygamy. Later on, he even allows for concubines, who were women who weren't even married to the man, uh, but they desired their children because at least that afforded some sort of protection for them. So God's willing to go a really long distance for the sake of protecting women and children because he's a God who always puts the reality of where people are at and loving people where they're at ahead of whatever rules he's got or ideals he's got. And so he bends and allows for polygamy and concubines. But, and so there's passages in the Bible which once God accommodates that polygamy, he looks like a typical ancient Near Eastern deity who condones polygamy. And we have passages in the Bible where God is depicted as saying, hey, I'm going to bless you with many wives because you obey me. Things like that. You get the impression that polygamy was a great idea. Concubines is a great idea. But we've got to remember that, no, the, the, the true God is not a polygamous God. The true God's a monogamous God. He's only appearing this way because he's meeting people where they're at. They need to see him this way, and so he lets them see him this way. And he's inspiring his story through them, and so that's the way he appears in Scripture. But we've got to remember that not only to just see what's on the surface, but to see what's in the depth. God is stooping, which will reveal God to us. And all these passages that, that make God look like he's a polygamist, it, it, it should amaze us that God's willing to stoop this far to stay in loving relationship with these people, to keep on influencing them in the direction of truth. We ought to be amazed at the depth to which God stoops when we find God appearing in ugly ways in the Bible for the same reason, reason that we're amazed when we find God stooping uh, into the ugliness of the cross in the Bible. It's the same thing. We're seeing a reflection of the cross. Uh, God's ideal for Israel was not to, so they'd have no king. He wanted to illustrate to the other nations what it's like for people to just uh, have God as a king. And he always told the Israelites, if you trust me, I'll fight your battles. Trust me to be your king and you'll never have to pick up a sword. Which, by the way, tells you that whenever Israel picked up a sword, they were already outside the will of God. For a while, they got by with this ideal of having no king, but in time, they got scared. The Israelites started to cry. First Samuel 8, we want a king. We want a king to be like the other nations. Go out and fight for us, yada, yada, yada. It's hard to trust an invisible king. And so God finally said, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll acquiesce to that. So God acquiesces to their demand for a king. Now, that's huge because in the ancient Near East, um, the king was the center of the religion. God, the gods always dealt with the nation by means of the king. And so as soon as, and this is what the people are saying they want. And so as soon as God gives them what they want, he takes on an appearance of a king-centered, typical ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity. And a whole lot of the Bible is, 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 is written around the rubric of this ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity. But now as we read these passages where God, you know, the whole nation gets punished if the king does something wrong and whatever, we've got to know that this isn't who God truly is. This is God accommodating the, the fallen impulses and fallen needs of his people because he won't coerce them to believe otherwise. So the surface of, of this king model of God doesn't reveal who God truly is to us. What reveals who God truly is is this. We know that God is a stooping God, a God who steps into our ugliness out of his grace. And so when we find this ugliness here, we've got it by faith, see the same stooping God stepping into this ugliness. What reveals God to us is not what's on the surface, but what's in the depth. That this God is accommodating the fallenness of his people. I'd say the same thing. God's ideal has always been for, for gender equality. And God's ideal has always been for humans to treat each other with respect and to be free. Uh, and, and God's ideal has always been for human beings to abstain from all violence. Uh, this idea that women are property, that slavery is okay, or that violence is okay, that, is not, that does not reveal the true God. We know the true God in the person of Jesus Christ and in all of his teachings that culminate in the cross. And, and uh, what we find in the New Testament is, 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 at least we're closer to God's ideal 
of having gender equality in Christ is neither male nor female. I, I, you're getting closer to the being, there's no slavery. And so Paul tells Philemon to treat his slave like a brother in Christ. Well, if you treat a slave like a brother in Christ, they're no longer a slave, are they? And so we find God subverting these, these, these uh, fallen structures of the world. And we find that God's altogether nonviolent. Love's like the rain falls and like the sun shines. But see, people weren't ready for that. And so in the fullness of this world, you have... Almost all cultures have had, had patriarchalism and misogyny where women are treated as objects. And in many cultures, you've had slavery being practiced, including in the cultures that the Bible is, is written in. And in all cultures, they use sword, uh, sword to protect themselves and to get their ways or whatever. And so God has to accommodate these. If he's not going to coerce people out of having these ugly beliefs, he influences as much as possible, but there's a point where God has to say, I, I'm going to still love you as you are, even though you think women are property, and even though you think that I condone that, and even though you think that I, 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 I command genocide, and even though you think that I am in it for slavery, I'm going to stay in solidarity with you. I'm going to keep on, because that's the only way I can keep on loving you, but it's going to make me look like a deity who thinks that women are objects and that slavery is okay and that violence is okay. But as we read this, the people at the time thought that, but as we read it, knowing who the true God is, the surface of this God, who had these laws that make women into property and, and, and allow for slavery and, and, and endorse genocide. Uh, this, that, that doesn't tell us anything about God. No, we know the true God in Jesus Christ, and he's not like this. Uh, but rather, we, what we do know about God is that God is a God who steps into our ugliness and meets us where we're at. And so here, what should reveal God to us in all these ugly pictures is that we can, by faith, we know that God's a God who steps into the realities of human beings. He will not coerce us into truth, so he continues to influence us by becoming one of us, by entering into solidarity with us, just as he does on the cross. And that makes him look ugly, just as he is on the cross. But if you have faith that can see this, it's also what makes him beautiful, because he is the God who stoops into this, this ugliness. And now, see, all those ugly portraits of God, once you have the same kind of faith towards, towards the, them that you have in, in the cross, once you exercise death perception, uh, uh, you see the stooping God behind the scenes stepping in this ugliness. Now all those ugly pictures become literary crucifixes. They do in a literary way what Jesus does in a historical way. And they are testaments along the line of progressive revelation that God has always been willing to do what he does on the cross. A God steps into solidarity with our ugliness and therefore appears ugly, and that's how he reveals his beauty. Paul closes by talking about this, 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 uh, the bifocals uh, way of reading the Bible. I, I can sum up a cross-centered way of reading the Bible this way. And Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 3, out to 4, 6, tells us that um, when we turn to the Lord, the Holy Spirit removes a veil over our mind. So now we can see things in our imagination that we could not see before. More specifically, we're able to see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us. So there's a veil that's been removed. Uh, this is the veil that needs to be removed if we're going to read Scripture in a way that all points to Jesus Christ. Um, so, so when, when, we, when we look at, at, at Jesus Christ crucified, the Holy Spirit gives us bifocals where we can see on the one end, like I, I'm wearing bifocals right now. If I want to read, I, I put my head up and I can read the lower. This is, this is nearsight and this is farsight. So, uh, or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, either way. So um, the Holy Spirit gives us bifocals. So we, we see what's on the surface. We're nearsighted. We can read the words, okay? And that everyone can see. It doesn't take faith to see this. You just do exegesis. But... We also have a depth perception. We can look at it a different way. And, and, and when we look at the surface, we see this uh, guilty appearing, cursed appearing criminal. That's all you see. That's all anyone sees. But now when we have the bifocals of faith, we, we exercise our, our, 
death perception, we see that it's God who steps into this ugliness, steps into bearing the sin of this world, steps into bearing the curse of this world, and now the cross becomes a full revelation of God and it becomes beautiful. All I'm saying, and this is all I'm saying, is we need to read our Bibles exercising that same faith. If Jesus is to be the interpretive lens by which we read everything, and because everything in the Bible is written to point to the cross as the interpretive lens, how could we read the Bible any other way? If it takes bifocals to see Jesus as the full revelation of God, well, it's going to take bifocals, a bifocal vision, to see how all Scripture points to Jesus as the full revelation of God. And, and, and so it's about making a distinction between what's on the surface that reflects the sin that God bears and what we know by faith is going on in the depth where God's stooping to bear uh, the sin of his people. And see, now, now, I can see how all the Bible is about the good news of God loving us and loving creation so much he becomes a human and becomes our sin and becomes our curse. It's all about the best news in the world if we're reading it the right way. I encourage us, as we're regularly reading the Bible, as I encouraged us last week, to, to sit down and, and spend time with the Bible uh, on your own, asking the Spirit to show you. As you do that, remember those bifocals. Uh, at least I encourage you to try this way of reading the Bible out. Like I said, this isn't a doctrine. This isn't like we're going to plan our Ebenezer here. Uh, this is a way of looking at the Bible. Try it out. If you have a better way, let me know. Uh, if this works, shoe fits where. The biggest blessing of this whole thing, I guess, has been this. And I'll close with this. As we prepare, oh, I forgot to mention that uh, we are having a Q&A time here. So get your questions ready uh, and send them in. Uh, the number's up there someplace. Yeah. 651-321-3030. That's 651-321-3030. Do it quick because it's getting filled up fast. Here's the thing. A lady came to me a couple of years ago when I was first teaching on this, and, and, and she was a, maybe a lady in her 70s, I'm thinking. But she says, all my life I've loved Jesus. I felt like I found the man of my dreams. Like I was courting somebody, man, the, the perfect husband. But she, says, she said, when I learned about what went on in the Old Testament, slaughter them all, show no mercy. It's like finding the man of your dreams, but then also realizing or learning that 20 years ago he slaughtered a classroom full of children. It's a pretty good analogy, I think. Uh, he said, even though this, the, he, he right now is the perfect husband, anyone who could ever do such a thing, I, I could never give my heart fully to them. Um, but when she found this way of reading the Bible, uh, the God who bears the sin of people, she said, I finally, I finally feel like I can, I can now fully trust this, this beautiful husband. Um, he, he really is the character he's got now. The character he reveals to me is the character he's always had. He didn't just become a good God after getting through a bad spell. He's always been the good God who's always been stooping to bear the sin of people and take on an appearance that reflects that sin, and that's how he shows his beauty. And with that, I will turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Shauna. <laughs> sir! Captain Sir! Stop. <laughs> no, I just think the military <laughs> fatigue looks cool. So. Yeah, you made me spit out my water <laughs> earlier, so thanks for that. I cleaned it up. Hi. Thank you all for being here with us during this service. Thank you for listening and tuning in to Greg's sermon and for wrestling with some of the things that he's been saying and sending in your questions. Um, this is really big stuff and it's, it's good and important to, to dive in and to wrestle with it. And so thank you for sending in your questions. You know, I'm so sorry, you know we're not gonna be able to get to them all, but we will get to as many as we can. And so we've got Paul Eddy here to help us out and Greg's gonna stick around and <laughs> help us out as well. But I'm not gonna say much because I've already, I didn't realize I kind of went over a little bit, didn't I? You, you I, had, I, I you got had a lot to say. I apologize. <laughs> it's an important topic. We're gonna ask one question. No, I'm kidding. We'll, <laughs> well, yeah. we'll try to be short and I'll shut up as much as possible. <laughs> well, we'll uh, let you take a, a breath, take a break, and we'll, 
have Paul answer this first question. So Paul, Greg's explanation makes sense about why we find things like polygamy and women as property in the Old Testament. But then like he said, you know, we get Jesus and he brings that revelation, the full revelation of God's love in the New Testament, but then we still see sections of scripture that seem to support slavery, like Greg mentioned in his sermon, and even still degrading women or not allowing them to have leadership roles in the church. And so what do we do with that? Oh, good questions, yeah. A lot of Greg's work has focus on the, New Te- on the Old Testament, but, but you mentioned there are, there's some challenging stuff in the, in the New Testament. And I, I'm glad this question got asked because two of the ones we most commonly wrestle with, people, yeah. like, what about slavery? Yeah. What about, um, you know, God says that, or Jesus certainly treats, seems men and women equal, and yet all of a sudden Paul is saying in 1 Timothy, um, don't let them teach or hold authority over, over men. What's, what's going on there? Um, you know, this, this Jesus lens that you've talked about, Greg, I think, uh, and, and you've mentioned this, that if we're going to really have a Jesus lens that we can look at Scripture through, part of the challenge is going to be that none of us, say, in, in 21st century North America, are born with innate knowledge of the culture that God was having to accommodate to, to stoop right, to, right. right? And so part of the work we're going to have to do, if we want to understand those texts, is we're going to have to do some context uh, investigation. Right. That's why I appreciate you uh, mentioning uh, Ma- Megan Good's book, right. The Bible Unwrapped. Another wonderful uh, set of tools. If you ever want to be ready to be resourced for well, what's up with this passage is um, a two-volume uh, commentary set called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. And what we love about this commentary is that it doesn't necessarily tell you what to think about this text, but for every text it tells you here's the background knowledge of the culture that you're going to want to know about to try to wrestle with, with this text. And so uh, let's, let's take the slavery and, and uh, women in ministry. Why, why the prohibition that Paul gives? Greg's already taken us down the road just a few minutes ago on the slavery issue. Um, yes, Peter does say, slaves obey your masters. Uh, Paul has a very similar uh, statement in Ephesians. Why would they do that? Um, couple things about context now, historical context, like what's, what's going on in history, and literary context. What else is said about this topic in Scripture? Well, historically, we know that when Peter's writing this text, 1 Peter, all you got to do is read the rest of 1 Peter, and you know Peter is writing as part of a marginalized, persecuted, oppressed people to other Christians who are marginalized and oppressed in this environment. This is literature of the oppressed. Uh, Now look, when centuries later, uh, white slave owners yanked that verse out of context as dominant culture, slave-owning people who are are basically running the country, that's precisely the opposite context in which it was written. Peter's writing as a person who's going to be crucified upside down in a few years for this faith uh, to encourage uh, his, his sisters and brothers who are in slavery to nonetheless reflect the submissive love of God to their slave owners. He doesn't love slavery. He's trying to help people who are enslaved know how to enact the love of God. Now Paul, as Greg pointed out, Paul, when he actually talks to a slave owner, the only time we have record of this in the New Testament, the book of Philemon, and Paul says to Philemon, you are a brother to Onesimus, your yeah. slave. You're not his owner. There is no owner here. In fact, Paul actually says to him, let him go free and help 
minister the gospel. And so we see in Philemon what the word is to slave owners. Paul and Peter and the other texts are simply trying to help Christians who are enslaved be Jesus wherever they can be. Um, perhaps a little more troubling one it can seem on the surface is, is uh, Paul's teaching uh, that women shouldn't teach or hold authority over men. <laughs> and he does say this, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 1 Timothy 2, it, it says it right there. What's going on? Again, I'd want to say context, 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 right? Some, some wise person once said, a text without a context is a pretext. And so what is the context here? Well, a couple of things. First, uh, when Paul's saying this, this is the same Paul who in Romans 16 has already let us know he's quite comfortable with women in leadership positions. He designates Phoebe as the letter carrier who's going to take his letter to Romans. That's why he says in Romans 16, 1 and 2, I commend to you Phoebe. She's apparently going to be the letter carrier, and letter carriers were usually the person who orally performed or read the letter Remember, in this cultural context, most people are illiterate. So the letter carrier would get to the place it's going, read the letter, and then explain it if there are any questions. So apparently a woman was the first commentator on the Book of Romans. Not Augustine or Calvin or Luther, but, but Phoebe. And he also says in that very same chapter that Junia, female name, is an apostle. So the context for Paul is, there's something else that must be going on because in certain circumstances, he's very comfortable with women in leadership. Well, what happens, and this is, I think, uh, this is where knowing the history is so helpful. When Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, uh, he, here's his case. He says, I don't let women teach for Adam was created first, not Eve, but Eve was deceived, not Adam. Now, through history, a lot of men have read that and go, oh, well, that's easy. Uh, I guess because Adam was first and Eve was deceived, that means all men are generally more capable of reading the Bible and teaching, and women are always a little easily duped. Let's not let them in the pulpit. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. What we need to know is there was an interpretive debate by Jewish scholars back in Paul's day that noticed in Genesis 2, when God gives the commandment to not eat of the fruit of the tree, Eve wasn't created yet. Only Adam was. So Adam was created first, not Eve, is pointing to the fact that Eve never heard God's first commandment directly. It was mediated through Adam. Now the question, why would Paul bring that up in this cultural context? Greg and I, who've done some research on this, propose there's an answer. Just like Eve didn't have access to God's commandment because she wasn't there yet, similarly women in this first century context didn't have access to the scriptures because they were, by and large, illiterate. The only literate people in any context in that world were basically men. So maybe here's the timeless principle. If you have a group of people who can't read, that's going to be a challenge for them to be leaders in the church preaching the, the, the written word. You're going to need people who can have access to it and have literacy to be the conduit. Guess what? We don't live in that world any longer, thank goodness. We have equal opportunity for literacy. That's a cultural context. No more letters advertising things and no more, uh, now you can teach. So it's come a long way, progressive revelation. We have, we're getting there. Progressive revelation right there. Thank you, Paul. I promise that wasn't my question, but I really enjoyed it. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, well, let's stick in the New Testament. Well, we got five uh, minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
solved all, pretty much That's all questions. That's it. All right? questions answered right there. Okay. No, we will. We're going to hit a couple of more. I think we can do it. Um, let's stick in the New Testament. Revelation has come up, and the question um, of, again, Jesus bringing the fulfillment of God's love for us all. And if you look at the book of Revelation, the question is, how is that loving? It doesn't seem so for those who are left behind. It's a violent book, Greg. I have a little appendix on that in Crucifixion of the Warrior God, so I, you might want well to check that out. I just say that the book of Revelation is so interesting. It's like the quintessential Rorschach test. The whole Bible is kind of like that. But in Revelation, if you come to it with an assumption that Jesus is capable of horrendous violence, you'll find it in the book of Revelation. But if you come to it with the, the understanding that Jesus doesn't engage in any violence, that he, the way he does warfare is by laying down his life, well, you're going to find that all over the place. And, and I think that's the, the picture that John intends to give us. He takes all these traditional violent metaphors uh, of, of the Messiah— uh, from the Old Testament and from other apocalyptic uh, texts. And he subverts their meaning in these beautiful kind of subtle ways. So uh, the, one, one of the classic interpretive uh, passages in Revelations is Revelations 5. And kind of, you could use this to interpret the rest of the book. Where John, uh, they're asking who is worthy to open the scroll. The scroll being uh, the, the secret of how God wins in the end. Of how God's going to defeat evil. And how God runs the universe. And only the lamb is worthy. But, but first John hears of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Which is this you know, militant uh, depiction of the Messiah. The lion is going to rip his enemies to shred. But when John looks and to see... He sees a slain little lamb. And that's an interpretive device that John uses quite a bit. He hears one thing, but when he looks, he sees something very different. And that thing that he sees is different reinterprets what he first heard. Okay, so, so, so the, yeah, Jesus fights like a, like a lion. You preached on this a couple of years ago, in fact. Uh, but in fact, he, fight, he, he fights by, by shedding his own blood like a lamb. Or another image is in John 9, or, or Revelations 19, where Jesus is covered in blood which is a typical image of a warrior coming back from battle. And it's a badge of honor because you're wearing the blood of your enemies, but your blood wasn't shed. But in, G in Revelation 19, Jesus is covered in blood before he goes into battle. Uh, and what John is saying is that it, he, 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 this, this warrior fights not by shedding their blood, but by allowing his own blood to be shed. And so, yeah, it, it becomes a—I used to— yeah, when I first got saved, we were in the book of Revelation because we were in the end of the world, the mark of the beast, Henry Kissinger, 666, and the rest. Uh, when I burned out on that, I didn't like the book of Revelation for about 15, 20 years. I just put it aside. Um, it was only when I began to discover the scholars who were opening this different way of reading it that uh, I really began to see it as a good book. If people want to know more about that, I've got a reading list on Revelation uh, at renew.org, R-E-K-N-E-W. Uh, if you just go into Greg's library, uh, then it comes into different compartments. And there's one there, uh, a department called just a nonviolent reading of Revelation. And I get a list of 40-some books that you could read to find out more about that. That's great. So if you guys want those resources, renew.org, and you can uh, study some more on that. Okay, so let's get back to our focus scripture that we've been hitting over the last several weeks. Um, and so this question came in before when we did a Q&A. We didn't get to it, and, so, and it came in a few times again today. So okay. um, if Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, uh, and yet Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus abolished the law and set aside the law, does Christ fulfilling the law set it aside or, you know, abolish, fulfill, set aside? Can you help clarify? I'm yes. confused. Paul, you take it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it's interesting um, to, to kind of set Jesus in contrast to Paul there. But really, to get the complexity of this, we can set Jesus in contrast to Jesus a bit. Because 
the text we've been on for the last six weeks, I've come not to abolish but to fulfill, is the setup, it's really the introduction to the, what we call the sixth antithesis, which is gonna be where Greg gets in, starts, starts us off next week. Um, and it's six different sayings where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. And most of those are scripture from the Old Testament. So Jesus begins by setting this up by saying, I'm not gonna abolish this text, but he then goes on and says, now you've heard it said, and then he gives a different approach to it. Sometimes even undercutting the very law. We'll see this with what's called the lex talionis, where the idea was um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. So what's going on here? I would say that both Jesus and Paul have this sort of vision here. That what it means for Jesus to fulfill is both to, uh, Greg has talked about this, to bring the fullness out of the Old Testament, but also to bring to completion the intention of the Old Testament. Paul says in one point that the Old Testament was like a schoolmaster or a tutor to bring us to Christ, because in Christ, that's where the fulfillment happens. Uh, Paul also says, um, 2 Corinthians chapter one, that every promise of the Old Testament is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So there is this tension here where as Jesus fulfills it, it's not that he fulfills, to use Greg's language, the surface meaning of every text, but rather that, that depth part, and we see this when Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22, that the depth to every law, all 613 commandments, is really just two commandments. Radically love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. Both Jesus and Paul agree, do that, and you fulfilled the law. So... You know, what's, uh, we're probably out of time, so this might be the last thing that we can say. So I better make it good. I feel such pressure. But, you know, it, it, you know it, it, it's been amazing to me how this, these six verses have taken on a life of their own. When we plan on preaching these verses, we, we, we didn't plan all this. <laughs> we thought we'd have it done in one or two weeks. But it, it's, it's just been, God's been teaching us some things as we're going through this. And, and one of the things that occurs to me, you know, Dan, early on, so he started off the whole series by talking about how uh, it reveals how we need, we need both this acceptance as we are by God's grace, but then also a structure to move us to where we can be. And as I've been reflecting on this whole idea of progressive revelation culminating in the cross, uh, and I don't have this all quite worked out yet. I, 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 I might come back to this next week. But here's what's interesting is that the cross is the ultimate example of God accepting all humanity as we are, you know, as is, bearing our sin, our curse. So God fully accepts us. And yet Jesus, in revealing the true intention of the law, raises the bar so high. Like you thought you, you, know, you had trouble filling the Old Testament law? Well, now, you know, I'll be talking about anger next week. Well, if you say, you fool, if you have anger in your mind, uh, you're already out of God's will. And so simultaneous, I love you exactly as you are, all accept, but it's not lawlessness. Rather, it's that love as we are at the bottom. And, 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 and when you know, we really come to see how, how far gone we are when we start to hear Jesus talk about, you know, if you're lust in your heart, you're, you know, you've already committed adultery. So he bottoms us out and says, I love you as you are. But see, that's the very thing that empowers us to begin to strive towards the ideal, not to obey a rule, but because we're in love. Yes. And love is the thing that transforms us. So he's got to bring us to the bottom in order to start itching us towards the top. And it's just a, this thing has come full circle. Mm. I, I almost got goosebumps when I was thinking about it. Uh, just the way this, the cross just brings the summation of the whole thing. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll get to Jesus' ethics. And that's going to 
be, but at the same time, we'll reveal what sinners we are, but it also is what empowers us to be moving towards this ideal. Um, yeah, it's just, God's a genius, the way he works this thing out. I, do, I know like we're so short and actually over on time, but we've gotten so many questions in about this progressive revelation and I feel like we need to at least ask one. And then there's some questions about accommodation, so we at least need to ask one. So let's just have two more and then maybe you can figure out a way to work all this, the rest of them in, in your sermon. Please tell our week. sponsors we're going to be going over a few minutes here. <laughs> yes, okay? all of our sponsors. We're, 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 the captain's calling an, an audible here. <laughs> all right, so in regards to progressive revelation, so there are questions like how can we say then that the current canonized Bible is the only God-breathed writing that we use, or why, is, why aren't there any others if this revelation is progressive? And oh, then yeah. you also have a question, so you get to choose between these two. Why, the, like, progressive revelation, why didn't God just, like, stop it at the forefront? Like, why didn't he just, like, make all of the, the, the ways that he's accommodating and, 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 and having people... Where did it come from, like all the animal sacrifices, all those things that, that you're saying is a progressive revelation? Um, why didn't he just stop that at the forefront and never let them even have the idea if it was never his intent in the first place? So, dealer's choice. God, you know, he, he could have lobotomized them. He could have coerced them. He yeah. could have done that. Uh, that would have, that, that, that really undercuts the whole purpose of creation. Right. The whole purpose of creation is love, and love's got to be chosen. So, that's the one thing God won't do. Uh, it, it, it's a... Uh, would render the creation valueless. So that means God's got to deal with people as people. And, you know, Jesus told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed, but on the third day I'll rise again. But it goes in one ear and out the other because it went against everything that they believed. So when Jesus actually gets crucified, they're all shocked. And even if he rises from the dead, they still don't get it. Right. Someone stole the body. Because it was just too, that's what it is to deal with real human beings. We, we, we have our confirmation biases, our prejudices, our heart gets mixed up with our head. And, and to deal with the real human beings, you've got to deal with that by means of loving influence, mm-hmm. not coercion. Maybe just a quick word about yeah, the first question. Yeah, I was going to say, I know you. Yeah, like if progressive revelation, why not keep adding scriptures to the Bible right up to today? Right. It's a great question. And um, the simplest answer, I think, might be this that Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes in that first century, and this is God in flesh. This is the climactic moment of God's revelation to humanity um, for all human history. God literally in these 33 years becomes human and and, and expresses himself in the most obvious way in our context as one of us. Once Jesus ascends to heaven, it's now going to be his people, his church, that carries this movement on. But it's almost like what happens is within a, a, literally a few years, a set of texts are written by largely either eyewitnesses or people related to eyewitnesses, people close to that very Jesus moment that becomes the closing of what we call our canon. But notice, this isn't the end of God speaking to his people. Uh, so we could maybe say this. For the rest of history, uh, up to today, God continues by the same spirit that inspired the biblical authors to speak to us, to speak to us in community, to uh, speak to our hearts about his love. He's still guiding and leading us. But what those biblical texts, particularly the New Testament becomes, is a touchstone for you and I, or or say Woodland Hills community, to know if the voice we think we're hearing does in fact reflect the actual Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So we use it not as the closing of God speaking to us, but the the litmus test for whether God is speaking to us. Now I'll just say that um, 
the, the, the reason that I think it, the, uh, the foundation has been laid is because now it, there's nothing more to be said about God other than the cross. The cross is the definitive revelation of what God's character is like all the way down to his very essence. So there's no adding to that. Uh, there's new insights into that, and that's what Paul's talking about. New applications. Still, yeah, new applications. God still, you know, the story still goes on. But uh, Paul himself tells us that the foundation of the apostles and prophets has been laid. Yeah. And they're the ones who capture this revelation, and that becomes the constitution by which we live. So for good. our community. So good. God's still speaking. He's right. still talking. All right. Accommodation sounds really good, makes a lot of sense. However, it seems a little dangerous because... Uh, questions coming in asking, how do we know, like, is accommodation still happening? And couldn't we just, when we're reading the text and we come across something that doesn't appear loving and it appears harsh, um, couldn't we just automatically say, oh, well, that's accommodation. That's not yeah. um, uh, appropriate for today. And so then we're tempted to just throw out everything in scripture that maybe pricks us or convicts us a little bit because we can throw it in the accommodation bucket. Mm. How do we wrestle with that? Yeah, Greg. Yeah, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> briefly. Uh, Ever you know, so briefly. Yeah. So here's the thing is that th that's a, a legitimate concern. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we just cherry pick, you know, I, I like this verse. I don't like this verse. You know, we, we got too much of that. And that, that just conforms to American culture, like, we get it our way. I get to, you know, put together my own little smorgasbord of, of, of preferred beliefs. We don't want that. So we, we have to ask the question, well, then what is an objective criteria that we could have that takes it out of our subjective court and it anchors it in objective reality? And I submit to you that that's exactly what the cross is. <laughs> the Bible tells us, here's the criteria by which you're supposed to interpret the whole Bible. Um, now, this isn't, the cross isn't all conformed to our, our personal beliefs if we're really listening to the cross because, look, it confronts us in some radically countercultural ways. For example, you've got to die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about your food and clothing. Trust the Father. All these things will be added onto you. I mean, there's some stuff that challenges us at every turn. So it's anything but our own personal subjective stuff. Um, and there are times where there can be ambiguity, like, is it love? Is, is this really an unloving thing or a loving thing? And it comes sometimes, you know, tough love. And Jesus illustrates tough love. And remember, when I talk about the cross, I'm not just talking about that one event. I talk about the cross as a summation of everything Jesus was about, his, his teachings and his deeds. All of that is our guide to what God really is like and to how we're, we're to live. And so that's the grid that we're supposed to interpret the Bible with. So there's some areas where you might be, you know, like, well, this could be the Spirit breaking through and giving us a true revelation, or this could be God accommodating a false belief. But when you're talking about slaughter them all, women and children, anything that breathes, uh, but leave the trees because they haven't done anything wrong, uh, there you're, I, I think it's pretty clear you're dealing with not a reflection of who God truly is, but uh, of the sin that God's bearing. Yeah. That's an important distinction. It's not just that one event yes. on the cross, which was so important, but it was the culmination of all that Jesus believed in. And the taught. through line yeah. that kind of weaves it all together. Yep. Awesome. Final question. Do you think that God still accommodates today? So when we're struggling with our sin or things in our life, do you think that there's still an act of accommodation from God towards us? If there wasn't, I think we'd all be dead. <laughs> Uh, the wages of sin Thanks is death. Thanks for joining us, guys. <laughs> no, no, the wages of sin is death. And, and right. look, I, right now, you know, in, in your own life, uh, I'm still in progress, I will confess. Oh. Uh, and, and God doesn't work at everything at once. He, you know, it's line upon line, precept upon precept. God's patient with us. And there's things that are on the back burner that I don't even know are on the back burner until 40 years later, all of a sudden, okay, now we can deal with this one. You know? And so it's a process. I, I think it's a process as we're dealing with one another. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I'll just say this, that um, if you and I are in a covenant community together and we're helping each other become the bride of Christ, uh, we invite each other to speak into our lives. And, and that works if I get to know you pretty well, because I got to know you pretty well to have any kind of wisdom about what God wants to work on and what God wants to accommodate. And so uh, I, I'd be very hesitant to have any opinions about what other people should accommodate. First, look at your own life. What is God accommodating and what God, does God want to work on? And then in your relationships, covenant relationships, and we all need those, uh, uh, be seeking for wisdom on what God wants to work on and what God doesn't want to work on. Uh, but you've got to—if you don't know a person very well, and you come in with an opinion about what God wants to change about you, you're a bull in a china shop, and you can do far more harm than good uh, pontificating like that. We have to have a lot of humility— and uh, wisdom as we go about this. Yeah. Community is Community important. Is key. <laughs> Community yep. is key. See, Paul Community and I are on the same page. <laughs> all right. I know we didn't get to everything. We're sorry. Greg, you're just going to have to, like, preach it all next week. And there you go. <laughs> I'll just, just press repeat. That's right. The, the, the Re Reader's Digest version so we can cover more of these questions. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sending in your questions. There's so much good stuff. And so we encourage you to tune in next week because it's going to continue. Also, remember, if you have a prayer need, don't go away. Don't log off. Actually, actually hop into our prayer room so a prayer partner can minister to you through prayer. Uh, Tune into the Musecast on Tuesday afternoon because we will continue this conversation and talk about this a little bit more. And you can also discuss it with other people in gathering groups. So we discuss Greg's sermon or whomever preaches every week. And it's just a really great time to dig in with other believers and grow together. Thank you for joining us. We so appreciate you guys. Be well. Hasta la vista. <laughs>